the interesting thing, I think, going back is when we were artists, I think we looked down on business people mm. as not being As artists creative. usually do. Yes. Yes. They were our We had a bit of a disdain. <laughs> sustained. We, have we thought no dis- somehow we were more elevated. When we got into this thing, we realized that How business, creative business, business can be. is really creative. From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guests this week are Janice Provisor and Brad Davis, the founders of the boutique hand-knotted carpet company, Fort Street Studio. Manufacturing was a late second career for the married couple. Both were successful artists in New York before a sabbatical in China led to a fateful experiment with silk weaving. 25 years later, their company is an acclaimed luxury brand with locations in Hong Kong, London, and New York. I spoke with Janice and Brad about the challenge of going from art to business, why they're moving their factory to India, and how they got their lucky break from the Chinese army. This week's podcast is sponsored by Cherish, interior designer's beloved source for chic, one-of-a-kind furniture, art, and decor. If you're a design pro and not in their trade program, you should be. Starting now, designers earn $75 cash for every $5,000 they spend on Cherish, plus access to net pricing and specialized live customer service. Sign up at Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com backslash trade. So often when we have people sit down with us, they want to tell us the story of we couldn't find a particular chair in the marketplace, so we went out and invented it. And your story has this has this way of being a story of two artists who wanted to make a silk carpet for their loft in Tribeca literally moved to China and started uh, a, a silk carpet business. That's not the real story of, no, but of it's how not, it happened. It's not really. But, the, but your description of what somebody did to build a carpet company or a furniture company is very similar. When we built a house in Colorado, we looked for a carpet for a living room and we could not find anything we liked. And we went around and traditional carpets weren't right. Art Deco carpets weren't right. There were no contemporary carpets. They or were they were really super boring, graphic. Mm. Super graphic. And we finally settled on a Chinese Art Deco carpet from the 20s. And that led us to the idea that we could make a carpet for ourselves in a watercolor. Because in the center flowers in this Art Deco carpet, there was some blending colors. Shading. Shading mm. from light to dark. And, and I thought... If they could do it in this little flower, why couldn't we make a whole carpet like that? So this was this was the early 1990s. 90, yes, yes. No, 1990, 94. Right. Okay, and and sort of to set the stage for our listeners, so both of you at the time were very successful artists, full time, self supporting artists, right. self supporting artists. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, Showing internationally in museum collections. And, and was it actually a, a change in the art scene that, Brad, I think you've described in the past that yes. sort of led to you wanting a change? Uh, in, in the early 90s, there was a recession mm. and Which, the art world really sort of closed up shop. You know, it contracted se- severely. And we thought, why not ha- take why an not adventure, take, take a year as, off because we could afford off. to do that. 
and we, we have didn't an want adventure. to teach. We didn't want to mope around New York. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and be depressed thought, with all of our friends. They so thought this is an opportunity. Okay. And the opportunity really uh, directed us towards China because we had been there in 1989. Janice had been invited to do prints. The Crown by, Point Press okay. asked me to, it's a fine art print publisher from mm-hmm. San Francisco, and they were take, had taken a lot of artists to Japan. And then they tried to move over to China. And they did take a couple of people. It was more difficult. And they invited me to go. And Brad said, you're not going without me. You're not going without me. (laughs) And and we went for three weeks. It was right when China was sort of turning a little bit. It seemed more open. And we got, because we were working and not tourists, and there were only five of us, Hmm. uh, we got to go into people's houses. We saw things. And we worked. And that was what was so interesting. I got to make prints. And so I went into established and not quite established um, workshops. So when this happened uh, in the early 90s, we said, let's go back to China. But we also had made a connection because of that trip. So someone could help us get a visa. Okay. So someone could sort of right. help you get settled and get, right. settled get set up. And, okay. and uh, allow us to sort of establish ourselves there as a resident. We got set up and uh, Brad came home one day after meeting a retired, I guess, manager of, of a silk carpet factory. I took her out to lunch. Mrs. Lou. Mrs. Yeah, Lou. Mrs. Right. Lou. Oh, you've yes. read okay. your... <laughs> yes. Oh, I've background. done my homework. Absolutely. Uh, and- I took Mrs. Lou out to, to lunch. I had described what I wanted to do, but she'd never seen anything that we had in mind. In fact, we didn't have anything in mind at that lunch. We just talked about it together mm. and came. the only two parameters were... We can't do each other's work, and that it had to be not a picture, but a design. Not an artist carpet, but something that you could walk around and use, but not a picture. And how we did this, we artists are problem solvers, you know, and we're we're Mm. very active. We needed to find a, a place to work. There's no place to work. Our bedroom was quite large. And we went out and found a piece of plywood, four by eight, and we pushed two desks together, and we... Our studios were each one we side. We faced each other by a window. And that we'd left 3,000 square, 3, square foot loft yeah. in New York yeah. for this little table <laughs> by the window. Because there was no light. We had to mostly work during the day. Yeah, naked light bulb. Naked light naked bulb. Naked light bulb. I yeah. mean, it was very crude. It, it I mean, we But had, we were very excited. We came up with a lot of different ideas. And, and we, we pinned them up on the wall. All over the wall. <laughs> in our bedroom. And Mrs. Lou came one evening after work. And she looked at them and she, she, she just sort of collapsed on the bed and put her hands on her face and said, mayo, mayo, mayo. And mayo, mayo means she couldn't possibly do it. No, you can't possibly. Impossible. It's inconvenient. Can't, can't be, be done. done. Can't you be know, done. Yeah. Cannot be done. We said, well, I, we you know, I cajoled her. I said, well, what about this? And what about this? Well, maybe, and, you know, back and forth. And I had thought that I would um, be able to do a Xerox and break the thing down, break the design down into little parts so that we could come up with something there like There was no nuts. software then. But, but to, for, to lay all this out. First, no first of all, no the computer. only copy, have a computer. no computer. So I had to fly to Hong Kong and I had a friend in the art history department and I used the Xerox machine in the art history department to break down the design. And while I was there, there was a guy that was retired that was helping them digitalize their slide library for art history. And I sat down and watched what he did. And he said, you know, 
this would work better. And she, he pointed to the Photoshop on the uh, computer better than a Xerox machine, you know. And I looked at mm. it and he zoomed in and I realized a pixel is, is a, a knot. knot. And that was the light bulb moment. That's when it went off. That's when it went off. That if I could transform these watercolors into a pixelized design, then we could make a pattern. But that, Dennis, was really the very, (laughs) very beginning. So we came back. The light bulb moment (laughs) took two and a half years to realize. There was a gap between that light bulb moment and the reality. and, And at the end of the first year, we were there. And we were getting ready to come home and we knew Alec had to go to school. We had a tiny little sample that they made. It was about eight inches square. And it was ugly. It was awful. And I looked at Brad. I said, not happening. So this is how they tried to reproduce what you had drawn. Right. Okay. To make a sample. So, So then Brad said, would you stay another year? Let's stay another year and see if we can get this done. And you just instantly became smitten with this idea of I making think, these carpets? No, I, mean, this well, is I think a it's lot a lot of... It wasn't, it wasn't quite that easy. We wanted to solve the problem of how to make a carpet. Right. That was the challenge. That took quite some time. It did. But once we did that and got a first sample... We were so deep in. We were so deep in, we thought... I, I roll it up and I took it to New York and I showed it to the head of um, purchasing at Stark Carpet. I showed was it that, to somebody at House and sample. Garden. I showed it to a couple architects. Right. And all of them were very excited by it. But they also said, yeah. what they said was, this is not happening now, but they see it as it could happen because we were the very first people to ever do painterly carpets. Well, that was the thing. So it was so innovative at the time. Right. And people sort of suggested to you, no, no, the market's right. not ready for this. That's right. right. They almost tried to talk you out of oh, it. Oh, absolutely. They absolutely. tried to, to talk us but out of it. they were all interested. They thought, this they were is curious. wild. This is interesting. Yes. I wonder, you know. But how, we didn't what, think about it as a business then, Brad. What, but what happened was, it's very complicated, but you couldn't just make one carpet. Um, I mean, the industry was geared towards making container, container loads of loads. carpets. Hmm. We obviously weren't into financing something like that. We got them down to making three carpets of one size in one colorway. And, uh, and we started seven with seven designs. seven designs. And they were all okay. over the map. Yeah. And um, They were representative of the range of ideas that we were thinking about. But we about. didn't think of interior design colors. We didn't think... <laughs> We didn't think of anything like that. You weren't thinking of the market. Uh, not at all. You, we didn't right? know the market. You were thinking as artists, no way, which is what you were. Right. There's no way are. we could. We didn't know the market. We didn't right. know the you market know? at all. We, this we just our... had this idea and we, know we, we knew we wanted to do this. And, so, yeah. and then it took two and a half years before the first carpets came off the loom. And we were, now what? We have these 21 carpets. That, you, we, <laughs> that we, you've we, made and where and are you going to sell them? Right. And where and we're, We're taking a quick break to give you the insider scoop on the Cherish Trade Program. Join the Cherish Trade Program today and you'll receive new hotshot perks. Earn $75 cash for every $5,000 you spend on the site and access to a trade-only customer service hotline and snappy new project management tools to make your life even easier. And let's not forget the Trade Program's ongoing key benefits, including net pricing up to 30% off and 48-hour hold capabilities. To get in on the fun today, visit cherish.com backslash trade. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H dot com backslash trade. And now, back to the show. 
And so uh, one of the interesting things was there was a shop, a furniture store in Hong Kong that was the most beautiful Italian, uh, the guy who runs it. was a true modernist shop. Hmm. And it's called and, Le Cadre, and it's still there. And, yeah. and Paul M. Lau was the um, and he was a taste, owner of it. Okay. And a total tastemaker. And he said to us, we went and talked to him or somebody introduced us to him. And he said, well, I never look at things, you know. He said, but somehow I'll take the train out. We had a go down, which was like a rough studio warehouse. He said, I have a feeling I'm going to see something remarkable. I don't know why, but I'm going to take this trip. Mm-hmm. So he came out and he, he offered, offered us, us a show. our first exhibition. So it, so it was like an art exhibition? It, no, it's how they, with no, his furniture. It, it was Got it. With, okay. So it was a, all in situ it, with the furniture. He styled his showroom. Um, with mm-hmm. the carpets, because he didn't represent any carpets at that time. It was just sizal on the floor. And and it, it was beautiful. It, it was. Re- and everybody was very impressed with it. And, and we saw that this really had efficacy in, mm. in the market. And I had gone to New York and Rick Zolt from, from, from Stark, Stark right. had said, you know, when you get them done, send me some pictures. And then he invited us to do uh, a special exhibition for Design Week that fall. I think that was 1997. 97. A- at the D&D building. At, at the, the D&D, D&D building. building. So that and was really... John Stark gave us an introduction and we gave a talk um, at the Design Week. And they represented us for about for a what? year. Okay. But, but also- we realized that this was a very difficult way to build a business to having distributions put around to different showrooms. We wanted to, if we were doing this, we wanted to build a brand. We okay. wanted and to build a brand. We didn't want to be subsumed. Stark or any other big uh, company. You disappear. You disappear. And so what put that idea in your head? We want to build a brand. Because we thought that we had something very special. I mean, maybe that's arrogant, but we mm. thought very ego. special. Yeah. We saw it mixed in with a lot of things and it didn't sing. It just kind of got lost. And they were and we expensive. The they only, were quite expensive. The right. only way that we could really build this was to style it ourselves, style in it our ourselves own showrooms. and have our own showroom. So we started in Hong Kong with a very um, simple warehouse showroom, but we created our own look. Not only did we have to have our own showroom to create a brand, but we had to have our own manufacturing to get the quality and the precision that we needed so that we took over a bankrupt factory in China and we basically bought the production of that factory. It's very we the, unusual. What we, we were did. the only client. We didn't own the factory. We didn't own mm. the land. We owned the production. And we formed a relationship with this factory that maintained itself for 20, almost 25 years. Hmm. And uh, it was a very- that, that's part of our success is that we could really control every aspect of what Nobody we were doing. Nobody else worked there. So we own the production. The factory facility wanted only to work with you. Only us. And also, we were using a um, fiber. The yarn was this wild silk that nobody else was using. And at the time, this was a commodity that was controlled. And, and it could not be exported in the raw state. So while China exported their silk a lot, not this wild silk which has a suede-like finish and mm-hmm. became our sort of signature. What I think is interesting, and Brad's talking about the genesis, mm. a lot of this, but the, the other side of this is 
that we had to really understand how to build a business. Yes. And we had no experience in that. Well, exactly. You had no experience None, in that. None, zero. I mean, we, we made our paintings. We gave them to a gallery. We made sure that we, they, we got paid. Of course, uh, we paid our bills and did our taxes. But that was the extent. That was of, the extent yeah. of it. Yeah. But, but so I, how did you sort of make this I transformation? I was the one. Well, the interesting thing, I think, going back is when we were artists, I think we look down on business people mm. as not being as artists creative. usually do. Yes, yes. They were our we clients, had a bit of a disdain. <laughs> sustain. We, we no thought dis- somehow we were more elevated. When we got into this thing, we realized that how business, creative business business can be. is really creative and really hard. And, and it, on the entrepreneurship, and it's a battle of time and money, mm. and you really have to be on your uh, on the ball. And pay attention to all these things and juggle this relationship between time and money to build a successful business. Well, and and, and an export business on top of it. Yeah. It's not Very like hard. you're running an ice cream no, shop no, at no. the corner. And we, had mean, to learn, we were making in China, dealing with all the we issues We had to of learn China. how to do all of that. And yeah. we had to learn how to do it in the most difficult times. Uh, we had no help. We didn't have an infrastructure and we, I had to learn to sell. I did more of the selling. Right. Uh, I remember having to go to what I jokingly mentioned, uh, aromatherapy lunches, where I was the carpet lady. <laughs> you know. So what was that? Wives were be, you know, of um, bankers would be having lunches and doing things, and I, I went. See. Okay, and, you, and know, you would go and I show your beautiful. Carpets. I didn't show them so much, but I talked about talk them, about and them. I invited people okay. to the showroom. She became the face and voice. The real advantage, and there was a tremendous amount of serendipity in this whole thing, because the silk that we got had been requisitioned to the PLA, you know, the Chinese army, Mm. for parachutes and and, um, various other military uses. And all of a sudden, they converted to uh, synthetics. So all the silk so came on the market all the, all the wild just when we walked in the door. And, available. And, and the, they were and, learning how to use it for carpets. And also, I don't know if you remember, huh. but in the American and European market, there was something called sandwash silk. And it became really popular in the, in the clothing industry. And so China flooded the market with that, which made the cost of domestic silk skyrocket in China. So these carpet makers who were just struggling to get along couldn't afford it. So they tried so to learn how to use they this tried wild to silk. to learn how to use this it wild silk. It all happened. Oh, it was so it all came together. Plus, we had gone from factory after factory trying to find the right manufacturer. And we would sample in one and we'd go out of business. You know, and, and or one guy was just a shyster and we couldn't work with him anymore. And finally, we found a really great company. And this company had the dyer that had set the standard for the Zhejiang Province book. silk book. So, you, you know, the, for us. and he was our dyer. Total luck. Total he luck. He was so he was a fifth generation dyer and wow. he he hung in there with me my crazy ideas and made them happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you so you bootstrap the operation. You you've made this commitment we right. we, are, we are in this silk carpet this. business. But what I think it was impo- interesting and in how we've changed is that when we started this, we started something that was a boutique business, very high end, uh very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. But I feel and and it was somewhat rare and we knew it was not going to sell to everybody. So it was a niche Hmm. business. As we've grown, we see the need to expand outward. People in the beginning said to us, why are you doing this? Why aren't you 
making machine-made carpets or making simple carpets or going to Nepal early. And we said we didn't give up our art careers to make widgets. We, to, to have this mass production business. Right. That's yeah. not what you wanted. No. Yeah. It, it we just didn't wasn't, want to, it wasn't in our DNA. People telling us, you should leverage this. You know, that, that great word, leverage right. this into something And right. maybe we should have if we were better business people in the <laughs> <Yeah>. sense. <laughs> but but so the painterly to, designs in the beginning, people thought, oh, you could figure out how to mass produce this. Yes, or any a, kind of designs. Or why are you beating your head against the wall doing this? If you're right. going to make carpets, right. but why don't you do this mass produce? the most beautiful, the most innovative. We wanted to make something that something that had artistic integrity and and high and aesthetic built, value is what and I also saw. High design. A business that represented that. So we do a lot of custom work. We have great customer service. We wanted to maintain that boutique boutique status mm. because it allowed us to control all the aspects of what we were doing. So take me through the timeline a little bit. So you you went with Stark in the beginning, and you were with them for about a year, and you realized maybe a year, maybe I'm not a even year. Sure, it was right? even that long. Okay, no, I right, think it was right. A year. And you didn't want to you didn't want to be amongst all, all of the other things. It that just they had. didn't it, work very well. Yeah. yeah, didn't work for a variety of reasons. Right. So then uh, we almost went with someone else. I mean, we had one disaster after So there were a lot of trials and tribulations. And a lot of people, you know, the carpet world, for better or worse, is a tough world. And it's not a welcoming world. It's not a welcoming world. It is a tough world. Yes. And when people were trying to knock us down, people would say to us, you guys are still here? Yeah. We were outside of the kind of milieu at the time. We didn't have family behind us. Mm. We weren't second, third. You didn't third have a gen- long tradition. We of, had no of making long tradition. We were, we weren't so who are you and we coming in? And-, and we weren't carpet collectors. Right. We weren't collectors of old carpets. We liked them. Mm. Uh, but we had a couple things around, uh, small things, but we didn't come at it from that sort of history in any way. But we came to it from, I guess I would say, feeling that we had something new that we believed in strongly, that it had a place in the market. And we we persevered. Right. You know, we started this much older. We weren't afraid of uh, being knocked down. And we were. You mean down. you were much older when you started? Yeah, a lot yeah. of people then, then, start right. businesses when they're quite young. You weren't kids when you we started. 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 Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, Do you hear that? So, they started the business in their 50s. It I was, can be done. I, yes. look at them yeah, I know. I was 50 years old. And, and it was around. interesting. We yeah. learned. I mean, I remember saying to Brad one day when we were driving over the hill to our showroom studio, I said, can you please explain to me how I was a full-time artist for as long as I can remember, and all of a sudden I'm learning to type and, and do invoices and become an admin? I said, how did this happen? Because I resisted this my whole life. I was never going to be a secretary I was never when I was growing up. Well, exactly. And as you were just saying, you look down on business people. Yeah, and, and I just thought- Right, that, and you, who needs those people? Right. To- but then it became sort of fascinating and- Building the business was a challenge that we really found interesting. Because you loved problem solving, as yes, you were saying earlier. that's right. right. We really yeah. do like yeah. problem solving. But and- what's been interesting is how we've expanded and changed. And I would say- Moving to New York was a big change. We came back to New York in 2002 and opened up our first showroom. That, we learned a lot. We had a showroom in Hong Kong, but we didn't have a showroom in New York. And we started meeting designers and working with the designers and understanding what designers wanted. I don't think we knew exactly before Mm. that. 
Because the first carpets came off the loom in 96. We had distributors. We had different people working. People bought carpets. Uh, Hong Kong's a small market. And uh, so we learned a lot from that. And that's kept us growing. But we started experimenting again about seven, eight years ago with other fibers. We saw the writing on the wall that China would lose weavers and there would be no more weaving in China. Well, so d- tell me about that, because I know that that's, that's caused a, a big shift in your, in your thinking. It has, and, definitely. And, and that ultimately you're going to be leaving China altogether? We yes. will. Our, for what's interesting Our factory is, will close next year. Your factory in China will close next yes, year. The last carpets all, will come off the loom in May. In May. Uh, we've just put the the last orders in, but we've been prepared for this for a few years, and we. And that's so, one of the reasons why we moved to Hong Kong is the second to, time. We the second back. time is to ease this transition from China to India, Nepal, and, and Thailand. And we've been working hard on that transition. So that, and doing different kinds of things. Yes. We're taking a quick break from the show to hear from one of our sponsors. When it comes to home technology, black plastic gadgets are out and friendly human design is in. With Google Nest, you can get a little extra help at home without sacrificing design. Nest Hub and Nest Mini are designed with soft color sand fabrics that fit right in on the side table or kitchen counter. And they're powered by the Google Assistant, so you can control your home with your voice. Just say, hey Google, good morning. And the Google Assistant can turn up the heat, turn on the lights, and tell you the latest forecast, traffic on the way to work, and even the headlines. It's a personalized briefing from an assistant that knows you best. It's a little help at home, like only Google can. And now, back to the show. So that's one one part of the the whole nut, you know. But the other part is really looking to the market here and understanding here or in Europe where it is, what people want, how do we change, what we can provide by still being of value, keeping what we do best, but expanding that. I think there are some people in the market and the big carpet people who Mm. think they can be, be all things to all people. We know we can't do that. I'm not sure that they can do that. Right. But, but I doesn't mean that we can't expand our offerings and we have, and we do different kinds of things. We do tufted now. Southern China is a tufted world and Hong Kong, uh, Taiping started in, mm. in um, Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. So sort of owned all that. People never even heard of hand knotted carpets. And so we're introducing that. And we do have uh, a factory in Thailand that does these silk flat weaves that nobody else in the market has. And again, we're the only people that work there, but it's not quite the same. There mm-hmm. are intermediaries. It's an interesting factory because it's a totally vertical factory. They raise the silkworms, they process and spin the yarn, and they dye it, and they also weave it, and they ship it. So it Everything that they do is made there in that one village in Norma, Northern Ireland. And they really Thailand. are beautiful. They're expensive. Right. Um, yeah. Because the Thai government really uh, controls the labor force and the pricing. People think hand-knotted carpets are all made by, you know, very poor, underpaid people. They're it's not, not true, uh, particularly in Thailand. Um, and we paid our weavers quite well in China, I yeah. think, in other areas. Well, once we stopped working exclusively in China, we had one price point there. 
was very interesting because they said that no matter how difficult the carpet or how easy the carpet, they would like to charge us just one price point because then they can alternate what weavers use work on different carpets at different times. So not all the weavers will take an easy one or a hard one and, and they're in control. And we said, fine. Now working in Nepal and um, India, Thailand too, to a certain degree, there are many different price points depending on the the complexity, the number of colors, the fibers. And uh, we're trying to broaden our price point and, and have a, we're not cheap, but we have a much broader price point. Right. And, we have- and and you never will be. You're never going to be competing. And as you said earlier, you're not trying to be all things to all people. No, and I mean, um, hats off and to these also, companies that are trying to right. deliver it quickly and right. at this price point. But that's I never going to be. Our real motivation is quality. Right. And innovation, great service for customers. Great service. We're really good at that. And you know what? When and that, people talk that requires about, uh, a certain amount of uh, money. But to, when people to talk about that. tufted carpets, they can deliver them so quickly. Well, um, FYI, so can we. We don't mm-hmm. advertise it as that, but we know that it only takes a certain amount of weeks, and we get it out quickly. And 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 is that the biggest thing that you hear from clients that they course. want is the quick delivery? Yes, the turnaround time, quick yes. delivery, down that lead and, yes. and lower price, and lower price. Yes, I mean yes. that tendency in the market has increased. That pressure has increased incrementally year by year. Right, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with the internet, because carpets look the same online. You see a picture. You don't know the quality. You don't understand any of that. And you see something that's $900, 9000 19000 You think, well, they all look the same. It's the same. You could have the same pattern. Until you look at the actual product, it's very hard for certain people to understand. And people see a lot of less expensive and, and quite decent. You know, it depends really what you want. I, I totally understand mm-hmm. that. But there's also a proliferation of people who sell carpets now than there ever was. And I think we were very smart to build the brand. And part of the reason we did that also is we were very nervous about our art careers. So we, in the beginning, well, we were worried that people would think in those days, oh, they're selling out. Uh, Are they making a product? They're making carpets. What are they doing? So we separated that and we chose a name. So we didn't put our names on the company. A matter of fact, the very, (laughs) the very first press we had. Just your address. Yeah. Well, right. um, The very first. um, It was El Decor. El Decor. We didn't put. We wouldn't let them take a picture picture of us. Picture of us. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, true. You know, Elizabeth Fairbaev Byron, I don't know if you okay. know of yeah. her. Yeah. She did the first article, I think it was 96, uh, with a picture of Hangzhou and one of our carpets. And we said, nope, no pictures of us. It's not about us. It's not we about us. Yes, right. We it's, don't want it that way. For, it's for just better Street words, Studio. It's Fort People Street also Street. said, oh, these are so artistic. I'd like to hang them on the wall. And we said, and nope. Nope. <laughs> it's not That's art. That's not what it's about. Floor. This is not right. art. I mean, we, we were... Trying to be very strict. We were so differentiated. We're not like that at all anymore. We're not like that. (laughs) We say you've loosened up considerably. Go ahead, hang it on the wall. You can hang it on the wall. Knock yourself out. Yeah, right. Upholster a hassock with it, whatever you want. I mean, we were making this transition from the art world to the design world. 
And there, there was a, at that time, the division and the hierarchy was more solidly yeah. determined. And there weren't these now, design stars. Now, you know, there yeah. are star designers. The, the, the relationship between art and design has really blurred in a wonderful way and expanded both sides. Yeah, it. I think it's great. And they're Great, you know, design firms like uh, David Gill in London and R. Well, design galleries, and you know, that do different workshop, kinds of things. And they represent really, really high, interesting, highly artistic kind of design. We're, we're wrapping up in, in May of 2020 with the factory in, in China. Right. The, 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 the story that sort of started it all is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. And part of it, as you say, is there just aren't enough weavers, but but also, as we've talked about, the, the tariff situation. The tariffs, the, that have been, tariffs uh, are, are killer. killing our margin. And, you know, it's very interesting for certain furniture companies in uh, American furniture companies in China killing their market too yes mm-hmm. baker people like that you know yeah. i know because we know people who have the um franchises, franchises. and they've had to close all it's, their companies yeah it's really this trade war is disastrous it, uh, it, it's really affecting a lot of oh people. it's really huge because if you have 25 percent of your cost it really cuts in a huge amount to your in your margin and when they started at 10 percent, we absorbed that that went from 4% to 10%. Well, we can't absorb all of 25%. So, and right. we let our client know right. that there's a one-time charge for this coming out. Now, you know, things are changing. We just heard, and people who make their tufted carpets in Thailand are probably not very happy, that Trump just put uh, tariffs on uh, exactly. tufted carpets and for Thailand. Said, Wait a second, let's also include these Thailand yeah. carpets. Right, just yeah. the tufted ones. Yeah, And now, Thailand had been most favored nation forever. And all of a sudden, they slap this tariff on. But you know, but we uh, have been preparing for this, Dennis, in a way that for a couple of years, and we've done something that's very unusual. Uh, and a couple of people who who work in India and work in other places were surprised. We found a very high end small Indian supplier. Mm. We've done some wool things with them, and and they're very private. They're very discreet, and they're very talented. And the owners met Brad in China. We had come back, moved back here from Hong Kong in January, and I think in February, Brad was back in China. But to meet and see everything how we did it in China, nobody could believe that we brought these two cultures together. And it worked out very well. And um, they are importing looms, some of our silk. They're building us a separate facility. They've already built a loom for us. We're doing a carpet. We can do very large pieces and we're doing a carpet. It's interesting for a firm in London with a client in Switzerland. And the carpet is, I think, 28 feet by 34 feet, something insane. Mm. And they built a building and a loom for us. Wow. So we're optimistic. So we're not giving up that style construction of weaving. We're just moving it to India. You're just moving it to India. And yeah. doing other things there, too. Exactly. And you and you still have this showroom in Hong Kong. We do for the moment. For the moment. It is and struggling. So what, is your, what is your thinking there? What, what do you think is ultimately coming out of this? Our bottom line in Hong Kong has dropped precipitously from having one of our best years ever. 2018 was, was one of the best years. years that we've ever had. And this is and probably our very worst. This is... 
I mean, it's it's devastating. So we just don't, we're holding on, right? Yeah, um, I mean, we're, we're we're hopeful. We're not that optimistic. There might but we're, be. <laughs> we're holding on. We're not optimistic. No, but, but I think we're realistic. Right. I think we're realistic that we see this situation. We look at it every day. It's difficult. And we're just not sure what we're going to do. We, you know, it's very sad for us. We've been there for 25 years. That's um, where we started. The, the, the whole thing is sad. It, it is. It's sad. sad. And, it, and it's sad that you're leaving China and that, yes. and that factory that's but, been but so you good know, to you But, you know, leaving China. And I feel um, for the people we've worked with all yeah. these years. Yeah. But you know? the people in China are ready to retire, too. So I'm mm. not so sad about that. Okay. It's sad. Yeah. And that's not, we're not right. abandoning them. They don't feel abandoned. Right. But They're ready to retire. But you two are, are not. in no way ready to retire. No. So do you, it sounds like you're becoming more engaged in, in going back and becoming artists. Uh, we yes. are. We definitely but we are. We definitely are. But that doesn't we, we mean we're less engaged. in Industry City in Sunset Park in Brooklyn. Right. We're very excited about this. We haven't been there as much as we'd like to be. Okay. But you've but moved back here. Yeah, so you're going to move back, back here. in New York. We have um, a book that's going to be published by Rizzoli Milana, Milano, Milan, in the fall of 220. We're working with a designer on that okay. designer here, quite interesting guy named Alex Lin. So there are a lot of things happening and we're continuing to design. We have many new prototypes that have come out and things that nobody's seen. So people are really pretty excited about it. We've been having groups of designers over. So we're still very involved. We opened up a, um, not a showroom, but we have a rep in London, an mm. office in London. Things are changing. We are trying to empower the people we work with to get out there more and be the face of the company. Okay. Okay. And, and uh, in the hopes of well, passing it on, I don't know. I, I don't know. Do, do you t- do you tell your people to be ready at a moment's notice? Nope. To, no. 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 Okay. We do not say anything okay. like that because we don't have any timeline, and we're very clear that we don't have a timeline. Mm. And if we do, we will bring them all in. Okay. But we feel comfortable that if we once the books them that we can divide our time between the studio and the showroom we haven't gone into the showroom full time for a long time we work from home a lot mm. i don't even have an office and we travel a lot so we've over the last five years we've developed this rhythm of working with telephone and internet and running the business sort of remotely but we have to be there too so So, we come in and out a lot and uh i think it's good that we're back it's a perfect time to be back because you're making so. so many changes in the business. That's right. And, and I think that designers want sort of more personal service. They love knowing the people behind And the I think product. that's really important. Yes. I think it's important. And that's the part that we enjoy. And as I told this woman that we met yesterday, Gloria, hmm. I said, the fun part of this for me is if I find designer a designer that I'm in sync with, I'm really interested more in working with them to create something fabulous. It's not just nuts and bolts. There, you have to have the nuts and bolts yeah. too. But but what turns me on is working with someone and get those creative juices going and seeing what can we come up with together that gets you excited as well. And there are certain designers that are really, really like to do that. You know, so that's great for us. Oh, absolutely. We're even... Dipping our toe into some commercial, we oh. are working on okay. a potential for a well-known hotel in um, Nomad, and okay. we hope we get that project. Stay, stay tuned for that. Uh, yeah, okay. stay tuned for that. And there may be one in Florida. 
But what I think is very interesting is that we're starting to move in that direction without doing major commercial stuff. Okay. And mm-hmm. so you never okay. know. Stay, right. ju- stay well, tuned. I mean, it sounds like a lot of changes and, and, the, and the manufacturing is, is changing and, and you're experimenting right. with a lot of new ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. And it's it's going to be a whole new a whole new chapter. Good, That's right. Goodbye, China. And hello, uh, India. More Jaipur. Jaipur, we love. We, we love, love Jaipur. Jaipur. And that's where I'm in. Shout out to Jaipur. A shout yeah. out to Jaipur. You know, great clothes, great everything. <laughs> great food. Yeah. Well, thank you both so much for, for joining me. It, thank it, you, It's really been pleasure. a pleasure to spend thank time after thank all you, these Dennis. years. It's and been it's, great. We're really happy yeah. to see you. It, Give our love to uh, Catherine. And- well, thank you. Thank you. My guests have been Janice Provisor and Brad Davis. Thank you again for listening. If you're enjoying these conversations, I hope you'll consider sharing the podcast with a friend or heading over to the iTunes store to leave us a review. It helps others to discover our show. We love your feedback. Please send us your thoughts at podcast at businessofhome.com. Our show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Lauren Pirelli and edited by Nina Pollock. I'm Dennis Scully. We'll see you next week.